For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome to episode 14 of the Baseball from Home podcast. I'm Connor McKnight, he's Joe Brand, and we're brought to you by the House of L Podcast Network. I've been covering baseball for radio stations in Chicago the last 10 years. Joe's been broadcasting minor league baseball for the last nine. He covers the White Sox and the Cubs for WGN Radio. You can find us both on Twitter. I'm at C1 McKnight. He is at Joe underscore Brand1. We would love if you'd rate and review the pod. Just We'd love it. Give it a five-star review and help us push it out to other people who like listening to baseball podcasts because that's what it does. So if you've got a podcast you like, you know, this one, uh, rate and review it well, and it'll get to your friends because science is actually magic now, and Apple knows everything. Love ya. Every show we cover the Cubs and the White Sox in no particular order. We'll kick it around the league and hit the biggest headlines as well. Uh, Joe... Lots going on in baseball right now. In fact, as we should do the we should do the disclosure thing. Cubs are in a rain delay here on Thursday evening. They are just about to start. So we're sitting down recording the White Sox portion of the podcast. We are also recording uh, whatever little bit of Brady Singer had a no-hitter and lost it against the Cleveland Indians we're gonna do in the middle of the show. But that's where we're at. We're in the middle of the Thursday night slate of games right now. I'm I'm a believer that there are baseball podcast gods, and they were smiling upon us by giving us just two White Sox games with an off day, and then just, you know, a nice, easy Cubs watch so we can record the podcast and move on into the weekend, but... But no, Mother Nature could not cooperate in the north side of Chicago, and uh, it's going to be a late night, but you know what? It's a big, important game for the Cubs, so we'll see if they can pull this one out. Yeah, and they've got to play it. There are far too many teams in the Central with uh, backed-up schedules, what with the the Cardinals needing to play 75 doubleheaders in the next four and a half hours. So it's really difficult to make up as many games as you need to. I should tell you, and in fact, I love telling you, that none of this would be possible without David Hochberg and all of the fine folks at Team Hochberg. David helped me secure the mortgage for my house in Wicker Park. He was fantastic. The team was superb. It was my first time buying a house. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing and made every rookie mistake that a home buyer makes except one because I went with Team Hochberg. I went with a mortgage team that knew who I was, that took the time to find out what I was looking for, and made sure that all those little mistakes got cleaned up, because that's what Team Hochberg does. You should go with Team Hochberg if you're looking to secure or refinance a mortgage. Call them at 855-56-DAVID, or head to the website at 56david.com. Homeside Financial is an equal housing lender, NMLS 1124061. So, Joe, the White Sox are 27 and 16, or by COVID math, 72.9 and 43.2. 
They are a damn good ball club. They are one of the best teams in Major League Baseball. They hold a 28-point percentage lead over the second-place Minnesota Twins. Cleveland has dropped off to eh, something like, uh, let's see, 34, 37-point trailer in the winning percentage because that's how we're doing this whole thing. The White Sox have virtually sewn up a playoff spot. They're the three seed behind the A's in the West and the Rays in the East. Of course, we all saw this coming, right? We saw it coming, but I don't think in this fashion. I don't think anyone saw it coming in this fashion, especially with the start that they got it off to. I mean, uh, there were a lot of Sox fans ready to jump ship just after the first week. Boy, did they look stupid now. Yeah. Um, and, I, heck, I mean, we were, well, maybe more me, was kind of skeptical about the way that this offense was built and a little worrisome about relying on the home run. But you know what? I am I am just taking the L on that, and I am ready to move forward. I think you have your offense. You have to like your offense with what you've got with the Sox hitters right now, and you just move forward with it. It doesn't matter if you rely on the home run anymore or not. Because now when guys like Osmani Grandal and Nomar Mazzara start to turn it around and Tim Anderson can look for a slider low and outside and end up knocking a double on a pitch in against his chest down the right field line, you've got something good going on right now. So you just kind of have to take your streaks as they come, especially in a condensed season like this. I, I don't think there's room to complain about the White Sox offense anymore because, honestly, you wouldn't have it any other way. There There's too much pro to complain about the con for their offense right now. Yeah, let's keep it positive, too, because the White Sox do have a couple of nicks on the roster as it goes, um, but one good nick, and that's Madrigal, right? I think when we're talking uh, about these – yeah, I did a little radio for you there – I think when we're—I'm not going to be proud of that later. It was Can we smooth. Edit this no, the it was so smooth. It was so smooth. I... Can we edit this? Are we editing this? Uh, I don't no, know. Let's I leave don't know. It in. All right, we'll leave it in. Everybody gets a taste. Um, I, I think when you look at this offense, though, what's kind of amazing about it is that, in theory, you could be adding. I'm—I'm I'm gonna say on base percentage, guys, but it's really not that. It's base path guys into the lineup. As Yasmani Grandal and as guys like Nick Madrigal specifically increase the level of production or in Madrigal's case just kind of like gets back into the lineup, you have more, more active and dangerous base runners. They don't have the home run pop that's populated throughout the lineup with Ed Carnacion, with Abreu, with Anderson, with Moncada, if he's healthy, with Robert, with Jimenez. Those guys are, are different types of hitters. Now, that's not to say that Grandall can't drive the ball out of the ballpark. He absolutely can. But he's more your 20-something home run thing, and he's a catcher. You're looking for him to work good at bats and not put a whole lot of stress on his knees. Or at least that's how my mind works, because if I were general managing a team, I would take any catching prospect who could hit and move them away from the plate as soon as they hit double A. Regardless, the the lineup is ready to add two to three hitters in Madrigal and Grandal, and I don't know, like maybe Mendick and maybe Yolmer or maybe the the amalgam of Yolmer and Mendick, Yoldick. You know, maybe that maybe that one 
Now that we have to edit, right? Like that has to go. No, well, we'll leave well, it. No, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be Del Delchez or San Monaco? I like San Monaco. Yol, Yol, Yoldic Delchez. <laughs> that is that is like a create a player name that the developers are like, you know what? We're gonna make a kid in the draft named Yoldic Menchez. <laughs> And he's gonna end up being really good. That's what we're just gonna we're gonna write that code into MLB the show. That's how it's gonna work. Before we have an icon for the podcast, what we need is a hybrid of Yolmer Sanchez and Danny Mendick. I, I like. I I think we need to name this episode Yoldick Menchez. <laughs> I I think I think there's no other is, way around it because that I tell you what that'll give you clicks and that'll give you downloads because they're gonna be like, well, what the heck are they talking about? It feels like Yoldick Menchez would give someone <laughs> clicks. Like if clicks were like a like a disease that you would not like a terrible one, not like an awful disease, but one you you needed to get checked out and then you know like a salve or something like that to to soothe things later. That's what Yoldick Menchez ends up working on. You guys, I have brought you all here today to tell you the unfortunate news that I tested positive for Yoldick Menchez. Uh, no, how, how about this? Yoldick. In in the spirit of the football season starting. The loser of your fantasy football team needs to name your first child Yoldik Nen- Menchez. I think I think we need to convince Yolmer Sanchez to get a Yoldik Menchez tattoo somewhere on that illustriously tattooed chest of his. It is it's quite a beautiful piece of artwork. I don't I don't um, I don't know what we were talking about. <laughs> we were talking about the entire lineup and with a guy like Danny Mendick or Yolmer Sanchez. Oh right, yeah. So I guess. <laughs> That's just to say they they have hitters getting added into this thing that are going to round it out some. Not not to the point where it's not like a a very blasty softball-y home run dependent team, but less so and slightly more dynamic with the base running that uh, Luis Robert already gives you and and what what Nick Madrigal gives you when his brain's not cramping, you know, when he's when he's not having horrific rookie failures. When you bring up Nick Madrigal's name, I, I think that's the biggest part is because he's that consistent piece of the lineup that can be that filler type guy. I mean, we mentioned it before. He's not a guy that's going to hit it out of the park. Um, typically on the good teams, I think you see it with those extra guys like the Leori Garcias or now the uh, Danny Mendix and things of that nature. But I, I still like the way this lineup fills itself out when you get a magical down at number nine because he's that extra leadoff guy that you have. Um, I still like to fantasize, and I know Sox fans probably hate this, but the idea of a Fernando Tatis Jr. on this lineup and how lethal it is, but still, how does it all work? And are they almost too home run happy that they're so too good it breaks the game or something like that? But then maybe you've got the Tim Anderson who's the more on-base type guy, which he's being regardless you're right. It's not it's not your traditional on-base guys in terms of, hey, we're going to work every count in favor of drawing a walk. I mean, that is not what this White Sox lineup is about. They are about putting the barrel on the baseball and waiting for their pitch. And we salivated over Jose Abreu's presence at the plate lately, how he's able to do that. Now Tim Anderson is consistently doing that on an even highlighted scale right now. And Yuan Mankata is just still kind of recovering from some side effects of dealing with COVID-19. I mean, these guys are all locked in right now. I think the only thing you have to worry about is that they all don't fizzle out towards the end. But 
they're just on such a roll right now. They've got all this momentum. They've got great team chemistry. It it almost seems like it's impossible for that to happen. Now, it's baseball. Anything can happen. But with the way that they're continuing to have these plate appearances, and again, it's it's Abreu, it's Anderson, it's to an extent Yohan Mankata. They're they're waiting for their pitch. I mean, they're in control. This is this is not just waiting for a mistake or drawing a walk. I mean, they are just so locked in that they can do whatever they want with every plate appearance almost. So you mentioned uh, the next slate of games for the White Sox here. And, and for me, that's the biggest worry. It's 17 in 17 days, the way it's scheduled right now. The last off day is today, you know, as we're broadcasting this this Thursday here. And then it's 17 to end the season for the White Sox. Um, the way it looks right now is that Lucas Giolito is scheduled to get Friday's opener against the Tigers. Then it's a whole bunch of TBD, not just for the White Sox, but also for the Tigers. They've yet to declare a single starter after Friday's game, which, you know, fine. It's a it's a pandemic, so it's so no big deal. But here's how this maps out to me and, and why the Keuchel thing right now isn't cause for... You know, hitting the klaxon, right, and and making the starter destroyer noise, where where it's all just very panicked. You could do Reynaldo Lopez, who's been recalled from Schaumburg, and then a bullpen game, or a bullpen game and Reynaldo Lopez Saturday Sunday. Cease, then Dunning, then Giolito versus the Twins, right? Because you've got this this benefit of schedule working for you because the Twins are next, uh, coming up on Monday, and then Keuchel's turn rolls back around for that fourth game against the Twins, and he's eligible to come off the injured list for that start. So until I hear from the White Sox or from Dallas Keuchel that he can't make that start, I'm I'm not going to spin out of control because 17 games in 17 days for a general manager is immediate DL the guy, bring up the next arm, because what you can't have is a, is a domino effect run through your team because you're a guy short hoping that Keiko could get back and around for a start earlier than Thursday's game against the Twins. That's some excellent scheduling on your part. I, I just had to load up WhiteSox.com forward slash schedule to map that all out. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's why you go retroactively. I, I think that fits perfectly. I, I think the other really important thing is just to get Giolito and Keuchel to face some really good offenses to just get in that playoff mode. I think a guy like Giolito needs it more than Keuchel. I know that's kind of been the bugaboo about Giolito the last year and a half is, oh yeah, no, he's great, but anytime it's a high leverage game, he's not all as fancy as he normally is. And that may be, but until I see a, a bigger sample size of that, I'm just not going to go ahead and believe it. Um, so it, it works out to where he faces the Twins and Cleveland, and then it's playoff time. So I, I, I like that approach with the Sox. I think you have to do that. I, I would imagine Keuchel gets at least one more outing, if not two. But like we talked about in the last podcast, the main thing that scares me is how it just came out of nowhere and by nowhere I mean he was having a fantastic game against Kansas City and all of a sudden in his warm-up tosses before the inning starts he's like yep yep can't do it can't do it 
that's where things get dicey for the White Sox. But, I mean, Steve Stone was on the score earlier today, and he was mentioning how a one-two punch of Giolito and Keuchel can take down the best team in baseball. And it, with the offense that they have, it's it's totally true. Now the offense needs to perform. So does Lucas Giolito, but, but that is totally true. And if the White Sox are able to do that, and I know I'm getting ahead of myself right now, but if they're able to do a one-two punch and, say, sweep a team in the first series, that sets them up even so much better because then you look at the next series, you look at who you're going to go with with game one as – arranged by how well a guy like Giolito and Keuchel did in the first series. Um, but th- this is why you get off to the start that you do. This is why you beat up on those bad teams and you don't apologize for it because the rest of the season now is just preparing for the playoffs. And I get it, half the teams, more than half the teams are going to make the playoffs, but you've got your schedule situated where you can get in the playoff mode. The Twins, Cleveland, those are tough teams. And you're going to have your one-two punch, hopefully, if Keuchel's ready, to go against them. You know, I was looking at that White Sox schedule and thinking, okay, the final three games, they don't have a single game against anybody after they've played the Tigers, of course, that's under 500. Everybody's a good club after that with the Tigers, Indians, and Cubs on the docket. But I was thinking, oh my gosh, if it all goes south for the Cubs, and it certainly looks like they're ready to go head south, right? If not march that way, but just like, you know, kind of list that way. Could the White Sox knock the Cubs out of the playoffs in the final weekend of the season? And I I don't think even that's possible with the number of games left and with the massive number of playoff teams that you're going to have. I mean, right now, for what it's worth, the Cubs are 25 and 19, uh, you know, pending their game this evening against the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, but the Marlins are the last wild card team in the National League at 19 and 19. The last wild card in the American League are the Yankees at 22 and 21, which, by the way, I want nothing to do with in the playoffs. And I don't care how badly they're playing right now. Those guys get healthy, like in the last three to four days of the season, and, and you get, I don't know, 40, 50, 60% of the dudes that are hurt back to 100. I, I want nothing to do with them. It brings me to the larger point, though. I, the game against the Pirates, the first one, Tuesday night, where the ball gets flipped to the plate and Yasmani Grandal has no idea where it is and the winning run scores. That's one that got away from them. And it got away from them with some shaky relief pitching, with some very bad defense, and and I think some poor decision-making too. And it's weird to me that that game... For a team like the White Sox, right, who are very good but have some obvious issues that will present themselves in a playoff series more than likely, that game matters but really doesn't matter. And for that reason, I need there to not be 16 playoff teams the next time we play 162 games in a season. You just kind of planted another idea in my head. Um the fact that the Sox are making the playoffs this year, I know it's not set in stone, but they will. I, I think it really benefits them for next year. And I've said before how no matter what happens this year, no matter how the White Sox season ends, they are going to be one of, if not the favorite, to win the World Series next year. You're kind of guaranteed playoff experience. So you're guaranteed that asset. You're guaranteed that 
experience, that value for this young core moving forward. So that that's something you wouldn't get in a shortened season like they have this year. I agree. It, it was a game that got out of hand. It was weird because it, it's a game that you knew they shouldn't lose and they could avoid losing, but they were probably going to lose the way things just continued to snowball. The questionable decision, I don't, I don't even hate going with Jimmy Cordero rather than Alex Colomay. I wouldn't do it, but I don't hate it. Maybe you're looking for a strikeout rather than a, a walk in that situation, and you know you got two runners on. But the fact that they go with Jimmy Cordero, who was not warming up at the same time of Alex Colomay, and one of the first things Jimmy Cordero does is throw a wild pitch. That, I think, right there shows you that was the wrong decision. I said before, White Sox fans need to cherish the fact that they are they have the luxury to argue and complain and sweat over bullpen moves because that's what a good team does. Mm-hmm. But that pitch was nowhere near the plate, and that honestly shows me that the guy wasn't warmed up enough. Now, I don't think the Sox come away with that win. Mm-hmm. E- at least easy peasy, maybe regardless. Like, I don't know if Colome comes in, shuts it all down, Sox win in extras. I mean, that's still a big ask. But, yes, that that is a definitely a, a questionable move. And, I mean, heck, it, it sparked the, the television broadcast. I mean, Benetti and Stone were both like, oh, yeah, it's going to be Colome or, or Jimmy Cordero. Here he comes out of the bullpen. Um, but, hey, it's one loss that you think got away. I was trying to think of some of the other ones maybe a few Saturdays ago against Kansas City when the bullpen imploded. Yeah. Maybe that Sunday night game against Cleveland on ESPN. The three-error game. Yeah, that one was ugly. Right, but, I mean, that that was the first game that was really a complete, utter implosion. And we've seen how this team responds to adversity. We saw it getting swept in the doubleheader to St. Louis, a team that hadn't played in over, rather, nearly two weeks. They came back and were a better team for it. So maybe they can play that into their favor. They've just they've shown that they can do that, so why doubt them now? Yeah, I'm looking for lopsided losses for the White Sox, even you know back early in the season. There's the 7-1 loss against Cleveland in the first week. And, and i got to be honest with you, I don't, I don't even remember that game. Was that the first game of the doubleheader? Um, it was no, it wasn't. Just right in the middle of a of a three game set. It's uh, before they played the doubleheaders. There were the St. Louis doubleheaders. Is that what you're thinking of? The the ones on Saturday. They lost one five no, to one did. in the opener. They, they had a doubleheader against Cleveland because they played 18 innings. I don't know. I'm I'm looking at the same thing you are though, and I'm not seeing yeah. a doubleheader. Oh, weird. Maybe the uh, maybe the schedule app needs a little updating. My brain is mush, so I I don't recall that one in particular. Uh, I didn't love that they let Joe Musgrove go four innings without bludgeoning him for 22 runs. Like I just you're facing the league's. You know, Major League Baseball's worst starter in in terms of ERA, which I know that's measures right, but and and I know that he even pitched well, right? I mean, you looked at some of the pitches he threw, some of the sliders he was able to to work, good pitches, like good stuff, decent stuff. Um, still threw plenty of mistakes in order for the for a team to get through it, and I wonder if that's one of them where everybody's watching tape, going, "This guy, we're fine." And then lo and behold, you know, he gets through four innings and never, uh, never, never Oscus gets you through another one. And that's, sheesh, man, maybe he took some for granted. 
I would hope that Dallas Keuchel spoke to his team after that and said something similar to what he said early on. Um, or I, I suppose the greater hope is that uh, they're at a point as uh, I almost said as 25 guys, but it's like, you know, 75 in the clubhouse now, right? Because rosters are, are infinity. Um, that, that they're at a point where they understand that that doesn't need to be said and that kind of crap can't go again. I, I want to branch into, you know, it's it's White Sox discussion, but we'll call this the Major League Baseball portion of the podcast as well. And I want to lead it with something that you kind of led me to here in this discussion about Jimmy Cordero over Alex Colomay in that one particular game. Usually, when a team goes from a very bad record to a very good record in the span of one season, the manager of that ball club is more often than not, and I would go ahead and say typically given a top three spot in your manager of the year voting. When you look at the ball clubs towards the top of the American League, and let's just deal with the American League right now, you have exactly two choices for teams that were bad the year before or at least not 500, and are good now. Those teams are the White Sox and the Blue Jays. If you scroll into the National League, just for sake of comparison, those top spots, you know, bad teams last year turned into good teams this year. You've got two more, and I'll hear arguments for another two, but I'm going to dismiss them. It's the Padres and the Phillies. Yes, the Giants and the Marlins are in the wild card hunts. They're the seventh and eighth seed. But I don't see those teams as being markedly better enough from last year's ball clubs. Maybe the Marlins, but no. To merit manager of the year votes. I think Ricky Renteria might win American League manager of the year. It's interesting that the other competitor is Charlie Montoyo of the Blue Jays because both these organizations had that track record of good young core, good young players on their way up with Vlad Guerrero Jr., Luis Robert, Bo Bichette, Eloy Jimenez, things like that. And then you fill in some holes with some veterans. I mean, I know Randall Gritchick was already there, but – like the Sox bringing in Yasmani Grandal. I, I, I got to get refreshed on, okay, even more to my point, with the Blue Jays' rotation. Hinjin Ryu, Tanner Roark, Taiwan Walker. I mean, guys that have been around the block, but, you know, that's what baseball is right now. Chase Anderson. And the Blue Jays made moves, you know, at the deadline to pick up guys like Taiwan Walker and Chase Anderson, too. Like, I, you know, I, it was an interesting discussion all offseason long whether or not Hyunjin Ryu and Dallas Keuchel were the guys for the White Sox to go sign after they'd missed out on Zach Wheeler. And I, you know, I, I liked Ryu. I, I thought he was a probably a better talent than Keuchel. Um, but I was very concerned. Ryu's never really been able to stay healthy, right? I mean, this is the first year that he, in, in a long time that he's going to go to the post as many times as he's been asked to do so. Um, you sign Keuchel, who's a horse and and should be just fine. That's a different kind of story. I I think the I think the Blue Jays, the White Sox, and the Padres are all varying degrees of the same ball club. Yeah, no, that's that's totally fair. Um, especially it's funny because 
working in the Midwest League, I mean, I saw Vlad Guerrero, Bo Bichette, uh, Kevin Biggio, and then Fernando Tatis Jr. He was like one of the first guys I saw in the minors. That like, oh yeah, he's he's way better than a lot of people on the field right now. Um, and I'm sorry, Sox fans, for bringing Fernando Tatis up twice. But to get back to the conversation, you're right. It, it's it's interesting how manager of the year. Uh, of course, it's about the manager, but it's usually it, it revolves on how the team did and where they were the year before. So of course, it's going to wind up with. Montoyo and Renteria. I mean, I don't know. Does it come down to who ends up with the better record? I, because, but even then, I mean, the AL East isn't as strong as the AL Central right now. So you would think in that case, Ricky Renteria has the advantage. Um, but do you make the argument that the White Sox are stacked with a little bit more? For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Talent than the Toronto Blue Jays. Well, I'll tell you this. Ricky Renneria has on his squad a gold glove rookie in center field who is also positioned to get votes, like legit votes for MVP. I don't think anyone's going to stroke a one next to his name, but there's going to be plenty of threes, fours, and fives. And, and Okay, probably not some twos because Mike Trout's still a human being. But threes, fours, and fives for Luis Robert, right? He also has a bullpen that has been brutalized by a season. He's got starting pitching depth that has been tested at every turn. Um, and Ricky Renneria is going to turn in a season, or or is poised, I should say, to turn in a season, where he has managed a, a rookie into that position that Luis Robert is going to be in. He has taken a... He has helped to take a shortstop that was not very good at playing shortstop into another MVP candidate whose defense is... Just fine, thank you, especially if he's hitting 400. He will also have managed a a starting pitcher who was the worst in baseball three years ago and has turned into one of the American League's best in a span of two years and through his first no-hitter this season. He will also, in the starting pitching testing that he's had to go through, he will also have had to keep bubble wrap on one of his most exciting young pitchers in Dane Dunning because he doesn't have another choice. And still, they found a way to schedule and put those innings down and be effective. Now, I understand the answer to all that is it takes a village, right? It takes a village to do all of those things. And that is 100% true. But Major League Baseball doesn't give out Village of the Year awards. They give out Manager of the Year awards. I think Ricky's got a damn good chance of winning. The one thing that changes it for me, Bo Bichette comes back healthy and, like, crushes for the last 10 games of the season, which I don't – it doesn't sound like it's likely. It sounds like that knee is is really being a jerk to Bo Bichette right now, and it's, and it's not something that's just going to magically disappear. If it were to do so, then the Blue Jays become just as fun as the White Sox, and I, I think that matters when it comes to voting. Um, because a, a fun team is, is going to draw more votes. It, it just will. 
I don't think they do give away a Village of the Year award, but don't the SBs give away Team of the Year? So so maybe that's the closest we'll get to, to Village. I haven't year. watched the SBs since Lance Armstrong hosted them. No, I watched the Peyton Manning one, which and I don't know which one was first, but I watched, I think it was Peyton, right? Peyton, it doesn't matter. It literally, it doesn't matter. <laughs> kind of, yeah, that's kind of like the SBs motto, is it not? <laughs> hey, it's the SBs. It doesn't matter. Um, was um, I have to ask a question since we're in the MLB section here? I, I, an interlude. You mentioned Fernando Tatis being a guy that you saw in a minor league t- field where instantly you go, Oh my god, he's so much better than everyone else. My, my first where I, where I really truly went, Oh my god, he's so much better than everyone here was Jason Hayward. And that's after I'd watched an entire season of Carolina League ball because Jason only came up for like the last two weeks of the season as a 19-year-old. And and up until that point, I was like, oh my God, Brandon Hicks is great. Tyler Flowers is great. Matt Wieters is great. My goodness, what great players. And then Hayward showed up for two weeks. And I was like, oh God, that's that's what's it. That's it right there. That's a ball player. See, that's funny because... Tatis wasn't the first for me. Kyle Schwarber was the first, but that sure. that didn't even really come until maybe a week or two into his existence in the Midwest League. I mean, he just—I've never seen a ball disappear into the night sky. Like I've never seen that live, and to see that with his second home run of the night, also being a grand slam, that was something I will never forget. Now the Tatis was just—we only saw that division three games a year. And he's playing short, and he's 18 years old, and he comes sprinting in on the infield grass, and he collects it on the run, and he throws the ball, I kid you not, from his ankles. Like, that's just how low his body was. That's the way his whole body was. And an absolute dart to first base and beats the runner by a few steps. It was to the point where my broadcast partner and I just looked at each other and just jaws down. Like, like oh, play over to first, and he's out. And literally dead silence for about five <laughs> seconds because it's just like, yep, that right there, that right there is why he can be something special. I just want to touch on a few things about Renneria. For sure, for sure. And I, I know I know that White Sox fans are very critical. And I think it's a combination of things. One, because they, they have a right to be for a handful of things that we've discussed on this podcast. But again, if you are going to do that, you do need to bring up some of the positives that he has done, or at least be willing to admit when he has done something right. And he's done a lot of that. The whole Luis Robert, why is he down in the order? I mean, you can't you can't argue that that's not the wrong recipe for how he's doing right now. I mean, maybe he's down in that lineup, you hide him a little bit, and he gains the confidence. Okay, pitching staff, opposing pitching staff, figures him out a little bit, finds some holes, he continues to grow, and now you can bounce him anywhere in that lineup he feels comfortable in. James McCann has caught Lucas Giolito ever since we the start before the no-hitter, where we said, all right, from now moving forward, Lucas Giolito needs to throw to James McCann. There's other uh, And something you brought up that I, I think speaks volume to Ricky Renneria's tenure with the White Sox is look at the growth of Tim Anderson, look at the growth of Yohan Mankata, and yes, there's a lot of individual hard work and talent and and reason there, but but the manager still has to be given some credit for that. I, I mean, the, there has to be some confidence instilled in these guys, and there has to be just 
the I, I don't know if it's whether you're talking to them on a daily basis or figuring out what they're going to do during the offseason, but he's been there for these guys' improvements, along with Lucas Giolito. I mean, you have to give some credit there, and I'm with you. I think because of the White Sox ascension this year, because of the flashiness and the sexiness of their team and how many players could win what, yeah, I'd imagine he wins manager of the year. You know, not for nothing, too, but people realize, people should realize that it's not just a manager's job to teach the player, but it's getting the right coach to teach that player the right things. And, and realizing when a particular message or messenger isn't the right one for that player. There's a reason that a particular coach is out there with a player before a ball game when he's young and, and working around, right? These guys, these, these coaching staffs are chosen as much by the manager as they are a front office these days. Depending on the manager, depending on the front office, you get chipped in how much one matters and one doesn't. Ricky's got a hand in choosing the guy that's working with Robert, working with Madrigal, working with Anderson. And, and that that matters some too here. You know, to, to put a button on it, what does winning a manager of the year do for you, really? Not much. Not much. But I think it's it's a fascinating piece of conversation because of what you said, Joe, and, and the way Ricky in this town on both sides, right? Let's not forget the one year he spent as manager of the Cubs. On both sides, has been um, beaten up a little bit when he hasn't had quite the talent. And I think it's worth saying when a guy's doing a good job in the circumstances you asked him to have this whole time. Let's look at just a little bit of track record, how you said, what does a manager of the year tell you? I mean, there were a lot of people in 2015 that thought Joe Madden shouldn't have won manager of the year because he had the Cy Young Award winner and the rookie of the year on his team. Joe Girardi got fired the year he won manager of the year. You're right. There's there's not incredibly a lot of merit held to it, but what are some of the consistencies we've heard every time that Ricky Renneria has been hired? He's a player's manager. Players like to play for him. I mean, that's one of the main reasons yep. the Cubs hired him. That's one of the main things that Rick Hahn has talked about him being on the White Sox. Just the other day, Tony Gwynn Jr. was on Lawrence Holmes' show, and he said that Ricky Renneria was the best baseball mind he learned from in terms of running the bases. So, I mean, th this guy has touched multiple people and multiple organizations, and you hear good things a lot about him around the league. And this isn't the you-need-to-worship-Ricky-Renteria podcast right now. We are not saying that. I mean, no one, no one thinks he's, he's giving Connie Mack a run for his money. But <laughs> there's, there's a time where you need to give some credit and also not just dissect every single thing that doesn't work out in the White Sox favor. That and we did the Jose Abreu, Tim Anderson MVP podcast on the last show, so we're looking for new ground to cover. Let's get to the Cubs. All right, let's get to the Cubs side of things. They take two of three from the Reds. 
still 26 and 19, which is 70.2 and 51.3 for those of you still doing the COVID math, or I guess even wanting the COVID math. We should probably do a survey of the podcast listeners. Things, they, they held off a team that they should have held off. You could probably make an argument that a sweep's not on the table because of the way Trevor Bauer pitched. That can happen when you play the Reds, I suppose. But there's not a lot in the Cubs game right now that makes you look at some of the issues that have been around all season long, all 2019 long, all 2018 long, all 2017 long, that that really make you feel a whole heck of a lot better. You know, for me, Joe, it's it's nice to see Wilson Contreras hitting the ball like he did in the uh, in the ninth inning or eighth inning rather. It's nice to see Chris Bryant square one up. It's nice to see Nico Horner have a game like that. But really, it, it's not like I'm seeing a lot of deep signs that this team is starting to fix what ails them, just that they're good enough to live with the problems they've got. I was wondering if maybe we were just too pessimistic about this team. Every time we talk about them, it's, it's oh, what's wrong with the bullpen? What's wrong with the offense? What's wrong with the rotation? Yeah, but they're still in first place. It almost seems crazy about that whole conversation. But then Theo Epstein comes out and says recently, we're on top of the division, but we have a lot of work to do. Like blatantly pointing out that, yes, even though this team is going to make the playoffs and can win this division, there is still a lot of uncertainty of how far they'll go in the playoffs. I'll say this, though, and I know I know it doesn't give you wins, and I know it probably doesn't make a lot of fans feel better. But they have a lot of gamers on that team. I I think you really witnessed it today with that four-run inning that knocked out Sonny Gray in the game. I mean, Nico Horner just basically doing that whole four-run rally on his own and being totally aware of, I think it was Ian Happ's infield single and just thinking the entire way, yes, I'm going to score on this play. And you get to the chirping and and all the enthusiasm this team has, that just shows me that it's it's a group of vibrant guys that are not willing to give up. Again, I don't know how far that takes you in the playoff, but this is not an effort thing. It's not a it's not a focus thing. It's just if anything, it's it's a lack of depth in the really important places that a good baseball team needs to be deep in. That's the type of game I want to see from Nico Horner like all the time taking a breaking ball and knowing how to get that back up the middle for a line drive or flaring it just out into the gap enough that it's like I mean that was like on the line of where you'd be up the middle and in the gap and just just getting enough there um you mentioned the the base running that's a that's a really heads up base running play on Ian Haps really it's an outfield single but it's fielded (laughs) by an infielder you know I don't know how you'd mark that in your book if you were doing the game I I think it'd be an infield outfield single or like a shift single or something like that. I we need a new designation for it, given the fact that Ian Happ sees that shift like a lot of guys do all the time. Yeah, that that's a good point. I'd probably write it in blue ink, of course, because that's how I write my hits. Of course, one B, one B in the corner, with maybe a little S four. Sure, 
just 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 so I know that it was hitting to the ship. But yeah, that's a good point. It was it was an outfield single collected by the infielder. Yeah, and and another one hit hard. Uh, you know where he's running hard rather. Uh, really kind of busting his ass out of the box, knowing that. You know, it, it wasn't the greatest nights for Ian Happ. I don't know that he was seeing it all that well and, and ended up reaching to try and put the barrel on a couple. And, and because he's swinging it hard, I, I think things worked out for him. Um, I don't know if you caught this, Joe, but one of the last graphics that the Marquee Network put up was um, for Wilson Contreras' last at bat, just after he rifled that ball in the left center field off the wall and probably put a dent in the brick. The the strikeout rate for Contreras in August was thirty point four percent. That that is, I mean, that is a ludicrous number for a guy that, you know, relative to the rest of Major League Baseball, right? I, I'm sure Cubs fans are going to scream when I say this, but Wilson Contreras, when he's playing well, doesn't strike out all that often, relative to the rest of Major League Baseball, right? It's not like he carries a twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight percent K rate. Um, still that is both stunning to me. And I also saw the graphic and thought, yeah, that's kind of what the offense felt like is that everybody was striking out at a 30% clip. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't just begin and end with Wilson Contreras. It feels like that number also echoes Javier Baez and, and Anthony Rizzo's struggles. I remember at the beginning of the year when we were thinking that Wilson Contreras seemed very locked in, so that just goes to show you how much even of a deeper dive he did in the month of August, but also how this turnaround in the month of September might be just so big for this entire lineup. Um, I, 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 it just goes back to to how much I hate when he plays angry and how much he can get into his own head of, all right, I need to break out of the slump with this huge comeback hit right now that will change the trajectory of my season. And I, I guess that's where you get the whiff rate a little bit more when you're just trying to do too much rather than just wait for your pitch and make some contact and extend it at bat. I mean, he's a very emotional guy. It, it's a lot like Javier Baez, but Javier Baez had that higher success rate earlier in his career. I, I mean, they've both been successful, but Javier Baez has definitely had more success at the plate than Wilson Contreras. So that's what I, I think you're getting at. And I, I know you want to talk about Javier Baez with the whole not being able to look at the video replay. It's really interesting because we brought up that conversation with the White Sox at first and how it was affecting Yasmani Grandal. And you almost, I, I don't know, I guess I didn't know if I expected Javier Baez to be a guy to be that. Not I don't want to say he's not intuitive or anything. I don't want to diminish his knowledge of the plate, but it just seems like he's a guy that, that really rides on feel and how well he's swinging at the plate. He just doesn't seem like a guy that would take that extra moment to go down in the clubhouse and, and take a look at the video replay, but apparently he is. And the one thing I'll bring up that I heard Jesse Rogers say on ESPN is maybe that's not why Javier Baez is having such a off year this season, but maybe that's why it's so difficult for him to even just turn it around a little bit. And when you lose that confidence of having that luxury to just to just really dissect your last at bat and, and think of it from a scientific nature rather than just, oh, he beat me, 
it's really hard to move forward or just move on from your previous strikeout or whatever happened. I, you know, I, I think this is a really big subject, um, especially for what's going to come in baseball, right? Because I, I think a lot of guys are, are terrified that there are no assurances that that kind of video usage is going to come back to them in 2021 or in 2022. And I, I don't know whether or not this is something that the union would get involved with once the CBA starts being negotiated. But once you've got, you know, cheating is the reason that, that this doesn't exist now. Cheating and COVID. Like, let's not forget that these two things go together. So when you've got a guy like J.D. Martinez or, or even Javi Baez or Yasmani Grandal who's complaining about the lack of being able to use the video in-game, it's not just the Astros and their cheating scandal that leads other players down this path that they're on, like pre-Tony Gwynn stuff, but it is also the pandemic that we're under, and it was baseball's attempt to restrict extra people in areas around more people, right? Still, I think this is something worth defending. There's no reason players can't use video the way they've been using it to dissect at bat after at bat. You know, I I mentioned the names Grandal and J.D. Martinez and Javi Baez, and I probably said another one, but it's very late, and the Cubs and Reds played forever tonight. I think there were 700 pitches in the game. This this matters to a lot of guys. And, And for a lot of players, Joe, you've seen it, it's that first trip through the minors. Usually it's double A and sometimes it's even triple A until you really get, well, in the past it's been, I know teams have much more video available to their minor leaguers now than they did when I was there, but you know, you get to that advanced level. And finally, not only do you have the video available to you, but you have either an, an older player or a coach that's like, by the way, here's how I use this. Take a look. So for Javi, it's not necessarily like, oh, I just, you know, he has to go look at the video to realize that he's been swinging at that slider low and away over and over again. <laughs> he doesn't need that shit. What he, what he needs is a confirmation of the thing he's doing wrong, perhaps. Now, I'm not saying this is exactly true for Javi. I haven't talked to him about exactly this. But imagine going back to the video room, right? And you're thinking, man, I, I thought I put a good swing on that ball. I'm not sure where I missed it. I didn't see the big video board replay thing because I was too ticked off. I slammed the bat on the ground. I didn't see it. I need to go see exactly what I did wrong. Otherwise, I'm going to take three guesses on what I did wrong up to the plate next time as opposed to knowing the thing I got wrong and knowing how to fix that thing. A lot of hitters are are mechanical beasts at this point the swing has to work exactly this way in order to create the launch angle that they've engineered all offseason long right not everybody is tim anderson or jose abreu where you just whip those hands in and hope the bat speed carries the ball into the outfield i i think being able to go back into a dugout or a or a video room and knowing what was wrong so you don't do it again next time has to be a factor here and really shouldn't be discounted even a little bit. The fact that COVID is limiting video replay for a player's use seems like a short-term problem that could probably and hopefully be resolved next year. But how you bring it up, whether it gets involved with the next bargaining agreement, that's pretty interesting. 
Um, you almost wonder how they regulate it. Can't they just create a new position for baseball officials and have one baseball moderator for each team at each game? He's got the computer or she has the computer or the iPad and that person talks with player A that comes down and wants to see their previous at-bat. Maybe they only allow the player to take a look at at-bats after that pitcher has exited that game. Sure. Because maybe maybe that's unfair to the pitcher then. Um, it's it's pretty interesting. But, yeah, I would, I would have to imagine that the players' union would get in support of the players of seeing that. I mean, because – Pitchers can benefit from it, too, maybe not as much because they're seeing the angle that the camera's at, at least when you get that. Is that high home? No, no, it's the batter's eye view from center yeah. field. So I, they're basically seeing the same angle. Um, but, yeah, that, that's pretty interesting. I, I do wonder how it evolves next season. You know what, I, you know what else I wonder, I, you know, as, as the CBA gets involved with this and the union gets involved? Because what we're talking about are jobs, right? And if the union is looking at a, a new technology or a new rule that is going to cost jobs, it is its responsibility to then protect those jobs as, as best it can, right? What I've even heard is, um, as, as, a, as a thought, you know, just as, a, okay, what if we did this? What if the video blurred the catcher? You know, what if, what if when you look back, when that, once that player gets that video, maybe it takes another two to three minutes or whatever to render it or something like that. But what say you have a video technician whose only job it is to grab that. I feel like we're doing like an arrested development show, right? Where you just put the blue dot over the, over the swearing George Bluth or something, but you just put the blue dot over the catcher's signs so that when that player sees it's his video it's it's not this thing where you can divine sequencing or anything like that. Or maybe it's cut and edited just a little bit better so you don't see, you know, even the time. You just see, you know, here's the kick and the pitch, and that's all you've got. More jobs in baseball is a good thing. Lord knows they've got the money. I know COVID sucks for everybody's bottom line, but they've got the money. More jobs is better why not use i mean hell there's a soft mlb advanced media is designing like 30 percent of the apps on everyone's phone you're gonna tell me that you can't figure out a way to just kind of auto edit that video as it goes through sure maybe it takes them another half inning but the pace of play in baseball is long enough that javi bias can go out into the field take a couple of grounders make a good play then come back and get that video that's better than what he's facing now yeah, I mean, if the argument is, no, we're not going to allow players to take a look at video because we want to cut down on the cheating, I mean, there is totally ways around it. Just like you said, you can blur out the catcher. You can start the video after the catcher's sign is made. Like I said, you can only allow a batter to see the video after that pitcher has left the game. Like you said, it's another job. MLB can hire. MLB can regulate. And there should be no reason why that can't be implemented by next season. I'm happy that the podcast is evolving into let's not keep hitting the same damn issues the Cubs are facing each and every pod. But I, I do want to say this. Um, let's go back to go forward here. Something hit me tonight, and it hit every Cubs fan really quickly. Uh, Billy Hamilton might not be as fast as he used to be. Granted, as a great throw, and the guy comes in to pinch run, and he's taken off right away. Like, that's his job. Everybody in the ballpark kind of knows he's stealing, right? But that didn't stop Dave Roberts in 03, or 04, rather. 
you know, Billy can take a bag. But Billy Hamilton's there because Steven Souza was DFA'd. And I know this. we could have covered this last podcast, but at the point, at the time, rather, Souza wasn't completely outrighted. It was just DFA'd and thought maybe he'd get picked up on waivers by somebody else or maybe even clear and get sent back to South Bend or something like that. He's been cleared and given his outright release. Steven Souza was a big offseason pickup for the Cubs. And I'm not telling you that because I thought so or that Joe thought so. It's because the Cubs said so. <laughs> like, in a number of different situations, they told you that Steven Souza was a big pickup for them. He hadn't played baseball in a long time due to injuries. And the last time he was fully healthy, he knocked in 30 home runs and was a bit one-dimensional. But, you know, the guy had some prospect stink on him. You know, it was some serious stuff. And yet this is where you end up like so coldly in between a double header. We're not going to use you. You can't hit right handers. Therefore we move on kind of thing. Um, I don't know. I, it, it, it's just, it's kind of a stark reminder of what the off season, even prior to a pandemic looked like for the Cubs and the kind of bargain shopping they went out doing position wise knowing that the offense was going to have to be what it's had to be for the last three seasons. He kind of reminded me of the Daniel Descalzo acquisition. I mean, I know I know it wasn't you know, we're apples and oranges. Souza was in the offseason. Descalzo was, I believe, a, a waiver, a trade acquisition. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you, you take a guy that's had some previous success from another team, you – you fit him into an offense that has holes, and oh, maybe this guy can can fill that role. And yeah, that didn't really happen. Um, I have a confession to make. I had a really bad tweet the other day um, with you, Darvish pitching. <laughs> I, I'll just be blatantly honest. I thought Darvish changed his number to twenty one because it was available. Because I, I noticed he had twenty one with the Dodgers, and I knew Steven Souza had gotten released. So I'm like, oh, why is you Darvish changing his number, having this fantastic season? And then I tweeted that out, and then about two innings later, Len Casper clearly informs me that he's wearing it for the Roberto Clemente honoree. And then I said, okay, Joe, you this is probably the dumbest mistake and worst tweet you've ever made. So I would like to uh, call blame on myself for that. Well, you're, you're not the only one to swing and miss on something you Darvish has offered this season. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, the Billy Hamilton switch today, I was not too fond of. I don't care that he got thrown out. I don't like that David Ross is pulling Nico Horner, who's had a couple of big hits in the game, and the Cubs are only up by four, and we know how this bullpen works, and when you remove Nico Horner for Billy Hamilton, you lose Billy Hamilton the second the inning is over because you're not going to put him out of the field. So by that, you lose Billy Hamilton and Nico Horner. Maybe a small move, but I didn't see the value in it, at least in the sixth yeah. or seventh inning, whenever it happened. I, I don't even love, you know, up four. I don't, I'm not a huge fan of, of going for the bag there when everyone knows you're going for the bag there. You know, I, I, I'm, I, my bias is against the stolen base, you know, pretty hardcore as it is. Not that it's not a valuable tool, just that seeking it for its own sake doesn't have the return. 
the counter argument to that is you're putting the one guy in there, maybe in Major League Baseball, while one of, you know, like 10 or 12 guys that like can go get that bag on demand. He just didn't this one time out of what is hopefully, you know, nine other tries that are successful, right? Because that's got to be Billy Hamilton's number if he's going to be any good for you. I I didn't love it either. It, it It's not my favorite move. And I don't like when managers just kind of deploy the, the one-dimensional guy just to go do the one-dimensional thing. I, I don't really like when clubs kind of offer a, a manager a one-dimensional guy unless it's, you know, exactly that situation either. It's just... It's just kind of a reminder. What Billy Hamilton is is a reminder that the Cubs have to take flyers on guys that have one elite skill, and that's not where I thought... That's not what Cubs fans should have hoped that this roster was, um, that that one elite skill was going to be something that actually you know, won them a game as opposed to gave them a small edge somewhere because the roster was very good everywhere else. You know, Can we finish with Trevor Bauer? Because I really want to talk about this. Proceed, my friend. Proceed. Okay, so... I'm going to bring up the comparison with the W flag. I love the W flag. I I think it's unique. It's got history. I think it's very cool that Cub fans travel around the nation and they bring the W flag, and when they win, they drape the opposing ballpark, the visiting ballpark, with the W flag. No other fan base does anything like that. Kudos to you, Cub fans, for doing that. But here's the thing. When you do that, you totally have to be okay with when the other team has the L flag folded up ready in their pocket to drape out. I think I think it's it's a great thing that Cubs fans should embrace because sure it's kind of a it's a troll feature, but it's it's like, okay, you're doing the thing against our thing. So it's cool because we're getting in your heads about it. That's how I see Trevor Bauer barking back at the Cubs for being a loud, boisterous team in the dugout. It's like, hey, you know, if you're going to be loud, be loud. This this is the Len Casper theory, too. This is his motto. Do what you want. If you want to flip your bat, do a cartwheel, fantastic. Go ahead and do it. But if I strike you out and I do a somersault and shoot a bow and arrow in the air and light a firework, you got to sit back and like it. So I'm okay with what Bauer said. And I'm just a fan of a lot of the things he does because he's kind of out there and because he gets baseball talked about for the younger generation and he he involves the sport and social media. So I'm totally okay with him not being okay with what the Cubs are doing. Baseball needs a bad boy. And if it's got to be Trevor Bauer, it's going to be Trevor Bauer. Here's the other thing on on Bauer uh, in that middle game of the series. His stuff was ridiculous. That fastball, I mean, it... It truly looked like it had upward movement through the strike zone. That was just nasty, nasty filth. And they still had a chance. I mean, they put two on against him and, and might have been able to tie things up. But Iglesias, I guess, I think it was Iglesias, right? Put the nail in the coffin and knocked it down. I mean, Bauer is, I, I don't know where his career ends up, you know. And I, I don't know if he's, you know, the guy that's poised to win a Cy Young at any point here. Or if he's just, you know... Herb score with some really good stuff and then we'll fade into oblivion and everyone's got to remind you who the hell he was. But, um, man, was that really nasty stuff. That's Trevor Bauer at his peak. And you're right. If, if he, if he's not that guy, if he's not the guy that can shut down a team at a point in time, no one's buying 
what he's saying or what he's feeling or what he's thinking a lot because it's it's the fact that he can back up his smack talk. Maybe not as as much as he was able to do earlier in his career with Cleveland or maybe as much as he'd like to do now, but but when he's able to shut a team down like that, it just makes everything about him all more credible. You know, I should say it, he he'll never be Herb Score, right? Because his he already redefined the game. He ch- he changed baseball. Trevor Bauer changed baseball, and it's weird that his impact on the game is going to be a hundredfold whatever he ends up actually doing on a baseball diamond. You know, the, the what he's done with, with slow-motion video and Rapsodo capture stuff, like all the driveline work that he's done, that that has irrevocably changed pitching. And no one really gives a damn about how he's pitching. It's crazy. Care to take a crack at the similar pitchers of Trevor Bauer via baseball reference? How how old is are you doing through age, through whole career? I guess so, yeah, I would have to be. Okay, how old is Bauer? Is he 29? He is... I gotta go all the way to the top of the page now. Yes, he's 29 years old. Is he, is he 29? Yes. Okay. Um, he was born 10 oh days gosh. before me. Randy Johnson's not on there, right? Randy Johnson is not on there. Okay, because his because Randy Johnson is is a fun guess for anybody before they turn like <laughs> thirty. Because Randy Johnson's yeah. first half of his career was is terrible, and his second half is is godly. Ooh, I've got a and great then, Randy Johnson story after this if we've got time for it. Is, is it about how he got nicknamed the Unit? Uh, no, it's not. Because <laughs> it wasn't about lasting very long <laughs> on the diamond. Um, I. I mean, it's tough, Um, but once you hear the names, it does kind of make sense. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so the similar pitchers, number one, Mike Fires, Patrick Corbin, your buddy, Matt Latos. (laughs) It's not my fault. I know, Matt. (laughs) It never is. Jake Odorizzi, Sonny Gray. Uh, Chris Young is in there at number eight. Most similar by ages, you've got Kip Wells, Tyler Chatwood, John Lackey, Michael Waka, Ubaldo Jimenez. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Like flashy guys. Guys who had, you know, not just season of flash, but season or two of flash, and then essentially just had stuff and couldn't haul it together, right? Yeah, I mean, just just guys that are definitely middle of the rotation and at points of their career high parts of the rotation. Yeah, Ubaldo Jimenez started game one of a playoff series, right? That'd be a fun look. That Maybe that's our research, research project for like a later podcast is like how many of those guys or find the most similar pitchers who had like big careers but also ended up starting game one of a playoff series at one point for a team, right? And, and were never taken out of the bullpen for an important spot of a playoff game either by Buck Showalter. Also true. Mm, All right, man. really quick, my Randy Johnson story, only because it is fantastic. So okay. I, had a, I had a pitching coach in the minors that was on Randy Johnson's minor league team, and he was a fellow pitcher, and Randy Johnson, it was his day, slated to pitch. He knew that there was a chance he was going to get called up by the big league team, the Expos, and that day, the Expos called that minor league team's coaching staff and said, hey, we're going to call up Randy in, in a couple of hours or so. And they go, all right, well, he's slated to pitch, and we have a day game. Like, should we pull him? This is back in the day where 
you know, they, they ask this rather than just do it. And they go, no, no, let Randy start. We don't want to mess with his routine or anything like that. Let him start. So he goes out there, and he gets a screaming line drive back to his glove, and it, like, knocks his glove off his hand, and he is screaming in pain, and his right hand is so busted up, and he's all pissed, and he goes back in the dugout, and everyone goes, all right, no, nobody tell Randy he's about to get called up because this, this will just rock his world. So before he goes into the clubhouse to get iced up, heated up, whatever, he tries to take his jacket off a hook in the dugout. The jacket gets stuck on the hook. He starts aggressively ripping it with his left hand, his pitching hand, finally rips it off, like literally rips the jacket using the hook, and then punches the wall <laughs> out of frustration. And he goes into the clubhouse. By the pitching coach I worked with at that time said, so I go I go in there, and Randy's, Randy's sitting with both hands and two ice buckets. Both hands are blown up. The first hand, not broken. The second hand, broken. <laughs> Kid, you're going to the show. So he, he totally could have been off scot-free, but his emotions caught the best of him, and he just slams his hand into the wall, and that's what prevented him from making his debut just a little bit earlier. That is hilarious. That is absolutely hilarious. And a great place to leave this. Cubs win it. White Sox on their way. That's episode 14 of Baseball from Home with a little bonus coverage of Randy Johnson's career. We'll talk to you next pod. We will be out on Monday morning. Have a good one. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.